Welcome to the intersection of theater and even more theater. You have achieved stage grok. Theater podcast coming to you from the Geographic Center of the American Theater. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Today I'll be talking with author Ken Glazer about his book, Searching for Oedipus How I Found Meaning in an Ancient Masterpiece, from his home in Maryland. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, uh, as I told you, I found you through your book, Searching for Oedipus. Um, and the first thing I just want to talk about is for people who don't know the play, um, tell us what is Oedipus the King and what's the, what is it about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's um, based on, like most or probably even all of the Greek tragedies, it's, it's based on an old myth of uh, the, the myth of Oedipus. Uh, so in other words, this, you know, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King is by Sophocles of one of the great uh, writers of Greek tragedy, but he didn't invent the story. He didn't invent the story of, of Oedipus. He did something very special with it, though. He took the story and, and did something very, very special with it, which is what we'll talk about. But you know, the background is, um, and stop me if, if this is too much, but the background is that you have um, the king and queen of Thebes, uh, Laius and Jocasta, receive a prophecy and the the prophecy says and this is from the 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 famous oracle of delphi the prophecy says that if you have a son that son will grow up and it will kill uh his his father uh and then um uh because of because of that they uh, decide well let's not have any let's not have any kids and they they hold <laughs> off a while but i you know there's different versions of the story but let's just take uh, maybe one of the more salacious versions that Laius gets drunk and he has his way with his wife, and then she does indeed have a have a child. And as soon as the child is born, and this happens in so many other myths and, and even fairy tales, tell you know takes the child and orders a servant to go have the child killed. Which the the servant takes the child, but the servant takes pity on the the, the infant and um, and pa- and gives the infant to a, uh, a passing shepherd who takes pity on the infant and brings him to the city of Corinth, where he presents this infant to the king and queen, the, the childless king and queen of, uh, of Corinth, uh, Polybus and Merope, who adopt the child. Then raise Oedipus uh, to be the, the prince of, of Corinth, and he uh, grows up not knowing that he's adopted. Until one day, he's at a, as a young man, he's at a, a banquet, uh, where somebody is drunk and somebody in his cup says uh, something about uh, uh, his not Oedipus not being his father's son. Oedipus goes to his parents and asks them, "Is this true?" They deny, of course. They say, "No, you are your true son." But he still has this lingering concern, and so he goes, as so many other people in myth and history, he goes to the 
the Oracle, the Oracle at Delphi. <laughs> they always go to the Oracle. <laughs> uh, they do. They do a lot, and 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 in myth, but also in, in also in history, they all actually plays. You know, oracles were a huge business in the uh, in the ancient world. I mean, a big business, and I mean business in a quite literal sense. They they used to make a lot of money, but in, but I, in any event. But what's so funny to me about what I've been learning about these oracles is that people went to them for like really big decisions and, you know, what's going to happen with my life and all that. And yet what they got from the Oracle was often really like confusing and deceptive and hard to understand. Well, exactly. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's why it's called Delphic. You know, we don't use the word Delphic for nothing. Uh, one of the, one of the most famous stories, and in a way this actually play, plays into it as sort of a tide out of it. One of the most famous stories from history, it's actually from Herodotus, who's one of the great Greek historians, is the king of Lydia named Croesus, C-O-R-E-S-U-S, Croesus, as in the expression riches Croesus, king of Lydia. He's trying to decide whether to start a war with King Cyrus of uh, Persia. And he goes to, he sends messengers to the oracle. The oracle says, if you, if you uh, begin a war with Cyrus, we'll destroy a great kingdom, and <laughs> which, of course, is you know, a little tricky, a little ambiguous, but... Uh, uh, Croesus takes that to mean, oh, he'll win the war. Of course, he starts the war and he loses the war. That, and that means that uh, he, he misunderstood which king, which which empire the uh, oracle was referring to. Right. So, um, so in, in any event, uh, so Oedipus goes to the oracle and um, asks, well, you know, am I my uh, who, who are my parents? Who are my parents? And as with so many of these oracles, he doesn't get a very straightforward, answer, <laughs> clear answer. The, um, the answer is, you will kill your father and marry your mother, okay? And now Oedipus, of course, I mean, you could make fun of it. You could say, well, gee, why didn't Oedipus, why didn't Oedipus uh, f- follow up with a, you know, <laughs> with a follow-up question and, right. and ask, well, who, you know, who, who are they? Almost forgetting the reason the reason he came to the oracle in the first place, but anyway, he takes that as a sign that he should never return to Corinth to stay, stay as far away from Corinth as he can to avoid being near uh, Polybius and Merope. He doesn't want to do those horrible things to him. Uh, and of course, while he's um, on his way away from in the opposite direction from Corinth, he is, uh, reaches the cr- crossroads. This, of course, one of the great metaphors. He, uh, the, a crossroads, a road, obviously a place where two roads meet, and there's an entourage, a very important man in a chariot, and his entourage are coming in uh, Oedipus's direction, and they kind of, and obviously there's, this is a myth, so there's no, we don't have a, we don't have an eyewitness account of what happened, but, you know, this the story is that there's, they get into, a, somehow get into a scuffle, the chariot runs over Oedipus's sore foot, and uh, he, um, <clears throat> And he gets angry, and he has a staff, and he ends up killing all killing uh, all of them, or he thinks he's killed, kills, kills all of them, but certainly kills the important man in the chariot, who, of course, turns out to be um, uh, uh, Laius, his, his real father. So they fulfill that part of the fulfill that part of the uh, prophecy. And of course, the great irony there is that he was trying to escape from the prophecy, he was trying to avoid the prophecy, and so it's this is one of the great examples in. in in history or mythology or story, really, of somebody um, trying to escape from a prediction, and in the course of that, running right headlong into the into what he's trying to avoid. You know, so he uh, then he, you know, it's a story of the hero. So he mar- marches along his merry way, 
and uh, is approaching the city of Thebes where he encounters the Sphinx, uh, which is uh, one of those hideous monsters from mythology that's part part this, part that, so you know, body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and the head of a head of a woman. This Sphinx has been uh, blocking all access into and out of Thebes, which, as it turns out, is is why the uh, why uh, Laius went to the uh, Oracle. Uh, there's some detail about how he had got around the things, but any event, it's a story. Uh, he went to the Oracle to figure out how to defeat the Sphinx. The Sphinx poses a riddle to whoever passes by, and if they don't get the riddle, get the, get the answer right, they are immediately killed. Oedipus, uh, being the great hero that he is, comes up to the Sphinx. When the, the Sphinx puts to him the, the the riddle, which is one of the most famous, if not, I think, one of, maybe the most famous, arguably the yeah. most famous riddle in the world, you know, what is it that starts off life on four legs, and then in the middle of its life walks on two, and at the end of its life walks on three. Oedipus immediately gets it. He says, ah, we're talking about man, because man starts off as crawling as a baby, and then walks upright as a grown man, and then as an old man, as you have to use a cane and therefore has those three legs in that sense. The Sphinx, the, the Sphinx not expecting to be beaten, ends up throwing herself off the cliff and killing herself. Oedipus, of course, is hailed as the great great hero of Thebes. He saved the, the city, and he's... Meanwhile, um, the timing is a little funny, but we won't worry about that. Meanwhile, the king, Laius, has uh, been killed. Okay, we know why, but the city doesn't exactly know why. And they just know that he was killed at the crossroads. And um, so they they have a vacancy for a king. There's an empty throne, and they offer it to Oedipus. And of course, along with the throne comes the queen, uh, who of course we know is his mother, Jocasta, and he marries her. So that is all the that's the backdrop. That's the backstory. Now, now the here, here's the funniest part for somebody who doesn't know the play. All of that happens before the play starts. Exactly. <laughs> and and the main action of the play is finding all of that out, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which which was um Sophocles' uh, genius. And here and here's what I mean when I say that. He as I said, he inherited the story, he didn't make up this this myth. He inherited the story. It was uh, it was well known for centuries before him. There's a reference to the story in uh, in in the Iliad. I'm sorry, in the Odyssey, when uh, Odysseus at one point goes down into the underworld and he meets various people, including the dead Jocasta. And so oh, there's, wow. a, there's a brief yeah there's a brief reference to the story. It says you know Jocasta is a woman who married her unknowingly married her son, and then um, eventually the gods made it all known. Okay, that's the phrase by. Homer eventually, you know, all was revealed by the gods, but neither Homer nor anyone else, as far as we know, before Sophocles, actually explored the story of well, exactly how did the gods uh, make it known, yeah. and um, from and that's and that's what Sophocles does in Oedipus Rex. And from from my point of view, uh, from my point of view, uh, Homer and others had yada yada through. The most interesting part of the the story, <laughs> exactly right. how does all this come out? And that's where that, that's that's as I say that's the backstory. So the story begins, the play begins, you know, call it sixteen, seventeen years later. They've been happily married. They've had four children, two sons and two daughters. 
and all of them go on to f- for further stories, further 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 plays, further Greek tragedy. But in any event, so uh, they've been married for X number of years, and they have kids. And then, and here's another stroke of genius, I, I think, by Sophocles. He introduces into the story a plague. And again, as far as we know, uh, Sophocles inve- invented this. Now, uh, the, the idea of a plague would have been very much on Sophocles' mind at this time because there was a terrible plague. Athens, this is sort of in the, uh, the, the 420s and 30s, Athens was fighting this war with Sparta, the Pelop- Peloponnesian War, as we know it today. And at one point, there was a terrible plague that killed an enormous percentage of the population. It killed off uh, Pericles, the great leader of uh, the, you know, the Golden Age of Athens. Uh, and they, he was actually, he and Sophocles were actually friends. So, among others who dies, uh, Pericles. So, uh, you know, the, the, the plague was very much on Sophocles' mind. But I think it was a, a stroke of genius on his part to, to introduce the, the plague into the story. The story starts with the plague, that the city of Thebes is suffering terribly and people are, people are dying right and left and the cattle are all dying and so on. Uh, and the reason I say it's a stroke of genius is, is that it's, it's such a wonderful example in literature of something, um, something going wrong in the world, in this case sort of the natural, natural world, that tells you that tells you uh, something. It's kind of like you know something right. rotten is in the state of Denmark. There's things bad things happening, um, and so uh, Oedipus then sends Oedipus is king, of course. He sends his brother-in-law. Well, so, so let me yeah. let me stop here for a second. Sure. So mm-hmm. one of the things that really struck me because I've only recently gotten to know the play well, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that struck me about it, well, two things. One is. They, Sophocles does what really great thriller movies does. He drops you down right in the middle of the action. There's no rising action. It's not everything's fine and we're going to throw it out of balance. We're dropped down where everything is already way out of balance. There's already a crisis. You know, we, we are dropped down right in the middle of the action, which I think is really cool. It's a really mm-hmm. intense way to start. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is just, I don't, I don't know, just like, it seems like, well, you know, wow, he did that all those years, you know, all those centuries ago. He he knew that that was a clever thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, he he does you know, he does a lot of things that were very clever, as as we'll be discussing as we, as we go along. And I think that's and, certainly one of them. And, and the other thing is that, that sort of he uses um, the, the ticking clock device that, you know, here's this problem that's getting worse. You got to do something about this before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so he does what he does. He snaps into action. He sends Creon, his brother-in-law, that's um, Jocasta's brother, sends him off again the, to the Oracle of Delphi, you know, this the, their, their go-to resource when they, when they have a problem, <laughs> crisis. And and so that the play, the play starts is you know right in the middle when he's waiting for Creon to come back. He's already before the play starts. He'd already sent Creon off. And the the play begins with the people of the city or the some of the priests of the town coming to him and begging for him to ask the king to do something about about it. And Oedipus is able to say, Ah, you know, I've already I've I've already done something. I've sent Creon off. Um, you know, I'm ahead of you. 
So uh, the Creon, Creon comes back from the Oracle. This is, you know, it's pretty much the beginning of the play, and um, with some very interesting news. He says to Oedipus, what the Oracle said is that uh, the people who had killed the previous king, his predecessor, King Laos, those people are lurking somewhere in the city, and they're the reason for the plague. The only way to get rid of the plague is to find those people and banish them from the city. So Oedipus uh, says, I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to find them, and they are, these people are going to, I'm going to find them, and I'm going to banish them, and they're going to live out their lives in, in, pain, and, in pain and suffering, step by painful step. And, of course, there you have the great motive of the self-curse. Yeah, you'll see maybe many many times later on in, in literature. And, another... and this this may be jumping ahead a bit, but one one of the fun things about your book is that you talk about that exact idea of and and how this manifests in in later plays and movies and stories and stuff. But the the idea of this hero looking for himself. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. So, and this is um, one of the things that really caught my attention back way, way back. Uh, I mean, I first read Oedipus in, in high school and it just grabbed me immediately and, and stuck with me for many, for many years. And uh, the book, and we're going to talk more about the book, but just to kind of give a, a, a overview of it, the book is really about why it's kind of a self-analysis in the sense that it's asking myself, why have I found this place so fascinating? Now, I'm not the only one who's found it fascinating and spellbinding over the over the centuries. Uh, so obviously, other people, uh, many other people, have found it fascinating. Yeah. Well, why do I find it so fascinating? And if I could figure that out, maybe that might be some kind of an answer to the the question. Uh, what I, which is called, it actually has a name. It's called the Riddle of Oedipus. In other words, you, you have two riddles inside the story. You have the, the great riddle of the Sphinx. And then you have this riddle at the very beginning of the play, the riddle of, well, who did it, who killed your predecessor, who killed Laius, right. the riddle that Oedipus needs to, needs to solve, just as he had solved the riddle of the Sphinx. But then there's a third, I always think of it in these terms, there's a third riddle. It's kind of a, a meta riddle. It's a riddle of why is this, what is about this play by Sophocles, this thing that was written 2,500 years ago, why does it continue to uh, mesmerize us? So that's you know that's I guess as I say kind of the overview. That's what the, my that's what sort of set me on the path of writing this writing this book. So do you want Scott? Do you want me to continue with the? Should I continue with the the synopsis of the the play? Yeah, yeah. Keep taking us through the through the action. Okay. So uh, he immediately uh, snaps into action. Really, as a as a detective, he needs to find something. This is right. a detective, and in fact, uh, it is. Quite possibly, and I arguably the first detective story in literature. At least, um, and I'm not right. saying that I've read that elsewhere with, with, by scholars. Uh, at least, no one is aware of any detective story ever ever written. You know, in other words, when we think of the the detective story, we immediately yeah. think of Sherlock Holmes, and then you do have some predecessors to Sherlock Holmes, and in, in the form, of, let's say, Edgar Allan Poe wrote some. Right. Some of these Inspector Japan uh, detective stories, but here and, you have twenty-five. And Sophocles is writing when? 
Sophocles is writing in the, well, this play is believed, but we don't exact it. We believe it's roughly 430. And as I say, the, it's really right after, a year or two after the Great Plague. Uh, but it's roughly a 430. Some people think, some the minority of scholars think it actually took place be, before the plague, but most think that it took place uh, sometime not that long uh, after the plague. But, we're talking, but I always think in terms of 430 B.C. And, of course, this is the heyday of the great uh, Greek tragedy, with you know, Sophocles being one of the three well, the, the, the three big ones, along with right. Aeschylus and, and Euripides. Right. Yeah, but that's, it's, it's just kind of mind-blowing that he was doing these, these narrative things that are now normal, take-for-granted narrative things, but this thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why, you know, uh, I, I've never stopped being amazed by this uh, work of literature. Right. So, yeah, he, he snaps into detective mode, and he even says, he says things that a detective would, would say. He says, let's, I'm going to search for every clue, even the smallest clue, the smallest thing might be a clue to the ultimate answer. The first thing he, the first thing he does is to uh, call Tiresias, now, um, so he can interview him. Now, Tiresias is another one of these figures from Greek mythology, again, a figure Sophocles didn't, didn't invent. Tiresias is the, the famous blind prophet of Greek, Greek mythology. It's a whole funny backstory about um, how he became uh, blind, but that'll take us a little bit uh, <laughs> But uh, it has something to do with the fact that for a certain period of his, time, of his life, he spent it as a woman. But, but I digress. <laughs> so he, but he's the great blind prophet of mythology, and he lives in um, Thebes. Oedipus uh, calls him and starts in asking him, does he know anything about this? Well, something very strange happens. Tiresias says, I'm not going to talk to you about this. And Oedipus says, what? What do you mean you're not going to talk to me? It would be very, very surprising for Oedipus to hear. Well, uh, Oedipus is, you know, uh, is, is, won't, won't take no for an answer, and he insists that Tiresias tell him what he knows. Of course, it's immediately suspicious. Well, they get into a terrible fight about it, and Oedipus starts threatening Tiresias. Tiresias finally loses his cool, and he says, he comes out and he says, you did it, you're the murderer, which is astonishing. This is maybe about... I don't know, a sixth or a seventh of the way through the play, very early in the play. And at and this there point, you have, if, if you're watching the play for the first time, at this point, we don't know any, any of the backstory yet, right? Well, yeah, it depends on who, who, who you are. Now, of course, the original audience, uh, the original Greek audience went and saw this in 430 BC, would have known the, the backstory. They knew all this stuff very well. They, right, right. You know, they right. knew their Homer very in, inside and out. They would have known story from Homer and from others. So for them, it wasn't about finding out who did it. It was about how we were finding exactly. out Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, in a sense, it's kind of like, it's kind of like you know, the Columbo television show, right, Peter right. Clark, where the show starts off with the murder, and you see right. who commits the murder, and then Columbo comes on the scene, and the rest of the show is basically sh- the, the thing that's interesting is showing how does Columbo figure it out. You know, right. that's, that's, what's, that's what's interesting. Yeah. So here, um, he's told, you know, right at the beginning by Tiresias, you're you're the one. Now, of course, Oedipus, Oedipus doesn't have an idea what he's talking about. I mean, this is coming out of out of out of the blue. It's coming out of the left field. It doesn't make any sense to to Oedipus. But again, it's another fascinating, you know, this is another fascinating thing about the story. Here you have 
you know, the, the, the truth comes right out the beginning. But Oedipus isn't ready for it. You know, there's a great phrase from uh, Shakespeare, I think from King Lear, ripeness is all. Ripeness <laughs> is all. This is a great example of that. You know, Oedipus wasn't ready to receive the, the truth at the point. So he gets very angry with, uh, with Tiresias, and he, um, he loses his cool. He, Oedipus, well, Tiresias also lost his cool. Oedipus loses his cool, and then he starts claiming that Tiresias was in cahoots with Creon, with his brother-in-law Creon. They were plotting a coup to overthrow him, and they're using this made-up story. Uh, and, and he says this with, with no evidence that this is true whatsoever, right? Correct. You mean about I the conspiracy between Tiresias and Creon? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's not one of Oedipus's finest hours, but you have to put yourself in his put yourself in his sandals here and, and understand. <laughs> Wait a minute, why is this guy accusing me of this murder that I didn't commit? It doesn't make any sense. But, and, you know what's interesting to me? Um, the more I've been thinking about this play and all, the play starts with Oedipus being very in control, kind of cocky even. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time in the story that we see Oedipus losing his cool and losing control. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But it's, but it's really interesting that here's this guy who's completely in control of everything. Everything works fine for him. But now everything's starting to unravel and he's losing his shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, so things are things aren't going very well in this little in this, in this little detective mission he's role he's playing. Then uh, Creon comes back in and he accuses Creon directly and he threatens Creon. Well, Jocasta, uh, this is her first appearance in the play. His his wife, and of course we know she's also his mother. She comes out. She sees her husband, her beloved husband, and her beloved brother fighting each other, and she tells him to stop fighting and um, she learns that all this came about because of this prophecy from the oracle well Jocasta, Jocasta at this point says oh oracles you shouldn't believe you shouldn't believe any of these uh, oracles why you know when my previous husband uh, and I long ago were given an oracle from the uh, from Delphi that you know the, their son would grow up our son would grow up one day to kill Laius, and uh, well, that, that didn't have, we never even, we, uh, well, we did have a son, we, uh, we took care of that, and so... We killed him. <laughs> kill, killed him, and so obviously he couldn't have, could have come, couldn't have come back to kill uh, his, his father, so you really can't, you can't take uh, Oracle seriously, and in the course of, in the course of her telling this story, and at this point, I should say, in the stage directions, I think typically Oedipus and Costa are by them, by themselves, although, you, of course, you always have the the chorus in these tragedies, so it, right. the chorus pretty much is always hears what's going on. But in any event, at this point, she she embellishes a little bit, and she talks about how, uh, as far as they know, Laius was Laius was killed by this a gang of, of robbers at a crossroads. And Oedipus hears this, and he immediately starts wondering, "Wait a minute, at a crossroads? Well, I killed I killed some people at a at a crossroads, and oh my God, it suddenly occurs to him." Maybe, maybe I am the one. Maybe Tiresias is right, and maybe I'm the one who killed Laius. And uh, he goes into a panic over this. And he, and he, and Jocasta says, "What's the matter?" He tells her what's the matter. He tells her also that he received this prophecy, this horrible prophecy, that he was going to kill his father and and marry his mother. Well, Jocasta 
a smart woman, but she tries to, uh, and she obviously sends something, but she says, no, 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 that, that can't be because he was killed by robbers. There was one survivor of the attack at the crossroads, and he came back into into town, and he reported that there was a group of robbers who killed Leas and the other members of the entourage. So how could it be? How could it be you if it was just if it was a group of robbers? That doesn't make any make any sense. In your story, you were by your by yourself, and Oedipus says, "Well, I guess you're right. Uh, it's one is not the same as many." And he says that, "Well, we need to uh, bring this this man here so I can examine him, the, the the witness." She says, "Well, he's now gone off, and he's a shepherd." And she says, "In fact, well, he was in town, and then when you came into town after you." conquest of the sphinx and then you came into town and we married as soon as he saw you he immediately ran off okay well, we, know, <laughs> we know why we know why that happens meanwhile you have uh this out of the out of out of the blue um you have another person arrives into town and this is somebody who's coming from corinth with some important news for king oedipus and that leads to the the next scene in which uh uh, this is the um, as well as, as as we know. This is the this is the he's now an old man. This is the the shepherd who took the infant Oedipus and brought him to Corinth to the king and queen there. He's come to town now. He's an old man and he's come to town to tell Oedipus that his father, King Polybius of Corinth, has died, and that the people of Corinth are want him to come back and be their king. I guess kind of a a double king, because he obviously also remained king of Thebes. He'd be wearing two hats. Well, um, you know, Oedipus is, uh, is is happy in the sense that he, he now he says, I don't have to worry about this prophecy right. of killing my, my father, because, of course, he still has this idea that Polybius is his father. I don't have to worry about that. But then he suddenly remembers, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't go back to Corinth. But the other side, there's this other side of the prophecy that I was going to marry my mother. <laughs> All right? I can't. I can't go back to corn. And then the shoe drops. The old man says, oh, you don't have to worry about that because Queen Merope, she's not your real mother. She's not your biological mother. And, of course, that's the great, that's the great turning point of the play where Oedipus learns that he was adopted. And he says, well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? Who, who am I? And then for the next stretch of the play, you have, again, something very modern. You have essentially this, I, I think of it as sort of a, the first kind of existential story of somebody searching for himself, try, trying to figure out who he is. Right. Because the rest of the, I mean, sorry, not the rest, but the, the next stretch of the play, which really is sort of the next third of the play, the first third being kind of this detective story, what I call a circular detective story. The next, the next third of the play is about a man who's, trying to figure out who he is, and it's really a story of, of an, inf- an infant. What happened to this infant? Who is this infant, and where did this infant come from? And the shepherd says, I'm sorry, the, well, he had been a shepherd. The old man from Corinth says, well, um, I actually received him from this, this, other, this other man, from, uh, from Thebes. And they, put two and two to, they all put two and two together, and they realize, ah, this other man is the, you know, he's the one, he played a number of role, you know, a number of roles in this story. He he was the person who took the infant and was with instructions to kill it, but then instead gave it to the the Corinthian shepherd. He was also the witness to the 
to the killing at the crossroads. So he knows he knows a lot, and um, and they and everyone says the chorus, and everyone says, well, the person you wanted to talk with is on his way because he's the he was the witness to the uh, crossroads incident. Well, yet, yet another wild coincidence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, you know, yeah, exactly. And you know, that's been a base. That's been a basis for uh, some people have made fun of the play for for that reason because of all these coincidences, of course. But you know, there's lo- there's lots of coincidences and lots of great uh, works of literature. Well, and also it's a whole play about fate. It's a whole play about stuff's going to happen whether you like it or not. Well, exactly. Which I th- which exactly. to me totally fits with mm-hmm. Bill. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, as other other critics, uh, and I tend to agree with this, have said, well, you know, it, he, it was kind of economical to have these <laughs> two old men play, each of them plays two roles each, okay, right, if you right. think about it that way. I mean, he could have separated it if yeah. he wanted to, but in any event, it's sort of, then he would have had all these extra characters. And so uh, uh, who shows up now, but the they, he's been summoned, the old man who was the witness to the witness of the uh, the, the uh, crossroads incident, but now the focus has shifted. It's no longer they're no longer focusing on the murder of Laos. Now Oedipus is, wants to know. Uh, well, you gave the infant to this old man from Corinth. Well, where did you get the infant? Okay, and that's point. At this point, uh, Jocasta sees where things are headed because she knows she knows who he is. This man. And we know who who, who, who all these people exactly. are. And Oedipus is the only one who's fighting it like hell. Exactly. And at one point, even uh, slightly strange, at one point, Oedipus says to Jocasta, says, "No, please don't, please don't ask him any, please don't ask him any questions. You don't want to know what's up because she sees where this is going, and right? she just wants to shut it down." Which is interesting when you think about this is the second set. She's the second person in the in the story to tell Oedipus to stop looking, the first right. one being Ty- Tiresias. And Oedipus, of course, refuses to stop looking, which is one reason why Oedipus has been viewed as one of the great you know, sort of truth seekers in, in the history of literature. Right. He just will not, you know, will not be content until he brings the whole story out. So um, he begins his examination, and this is really the climax, this is the climax of the play, he begins examination of the old the old man and uh, the old man himself says, "No, no, no! You don't want to. You don't want to know the answer." Oedipus has to threaten him with torture to get him to tell the story. And eventually, the truth all comes comes out. Oedipus, at this point, uh, Jocasta has already left, knowing where things were going. She's already gone back into the palace. Oedipus, at this point, uh, rushes back into the, you know, before saying things like, "I'm the most miserable and wretched of all human beings." <laughs> truth. He rushes rushes into the palace too, and then um, Sophocles has a has a palace guard come out and tell everyone what has happened, which is namely that Jocasta has hung herself, and that Oedipus had gone into the, the bedroom and he took her down. He took the brooches from her gown, and this woman, how he's just who was his wife, and he's just discovered also as his mother, and he blinds himself, um, and then he eventually comes out and. Now here's where here's another reason that I've been uh, so admired the character of Oedipus. He uh, essentially mans up. At this point, he could have said, "Hey, I didn't know. I, I didn't. I, it's not my fault. I didn't know anything about right. this." Right? Because it's not his fault. 
Right. I mean, you know, the poor guy, he's a victim, a cruel victim of fate, a victim of cruel fate. But instead, he he takes responsibility, says, you need to banish me. He says this to Creon, of course, who's now kind of in charge, and I'm going to, and I'm going to leave. Oedipus, of course, is blind. He has to be, he has to be guided by his daughter Antigone. Antigone uh, goes on to great uh, fame and a play of that name. And, um, and, this, and the play essentially ends at that point with Oedipus insisting that he, uh, that you know, the curse that he placed on the murderer uh, be carried out, even though, even though he himself is that murderer. Yeah. And, and I should w- say one more thing. You end yeah. with a chorus. You end with a cor- chorus. And the chorus has one of the, great, you know, one of the great lines, which is, do not reckon any man happy until you see uh, the end of his life. Meaning, you know, things could take a very sharp turn in your life, right, for the worse. Right. Yeah. One of the things that you were talking about in the book, which I think is so interesting, is that as we learn about Oedipus's past, as we go through the, the story, we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the past. Mm-hmm. Each story that we learn is further back in the past until mm-hmm. we finally get to that origin story. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really neat. It's not something that occurred to me just watching the play, you know. But it's kind of cool construction that it's built that way. Well, again, I think it's another kind of very modern aspect of it. Yeah, this is a play where, if you will, all the action had taken place before the place the play starts, and the play right. is you know it's about knowledge uh, right. and an uncovering of of facts. Well, so so you wrote this book, Searching for Oedipus. What what did you conclude? <laughs> why why are you obsessed with Oedipus? And and I have to tell you, I've totally joined the club now that I've been you know studying it, working on it. I get it. I I'm gonna the rest of my life. I'm gonna be looking for Oedipus stories. Great. So I'm glad to hear you're you're a fellow card carrying member of the uh, <laughs> yeah. Oedipus and Sophocles Fair Club. Well, so, I, so what, um, what did this play do to you? Mm-hmm. So I well I should I should first say right 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 at the start it's nothing weird or strange okay I I, I didn't discover late in life that I had been adopted and I I didn't uh, suddenly have a revelation that I was in love with you know uh, or inappropriately in love with my mom I uh, I have a very normal a perfectly normal relationship with my my mother so it's nothing weird like that it's I think it's just the the lessons and. The, the, the things that I've, the, the impact that it's had on me, the same things that would happen to any person kind of just living a normal life. So, uh, for example, um, I think during everyone's life, they go through periods where they're very uh, introspective and thinking back on their on their past, and you know, going back to the minds of their their childhood and what uh, and earlier and what might have happened. Uh, I think that's certainly one of the things that appeals to me about this life because. You know, as I said earlier, there is this whole section of the play, which is about a man digging into his, rooting around in his in his past and trying to yeah. understand who he is. That sort of ex- existential story. I, you know, again, another very modern aspect of it. But I guess what I sort of, um, my, I guess my kind of overarching take of it is, I I realize that I think there are sort of three. You could divide the play into into three parts. Uh, the first, and really, it, it turns out it's almost uh, perfectly uh, third, uh, you know, in, in terms of length, right. one third, one third, one third. The, the first third is this detective story. Uh, that, you know, I, I thought that was so cool when I was younger, you know, high school and college. I, I just thought that was so incredibly cool. This, 
this idea of a detective story in which the detective finds out that he himself was the the person he's looking for, whether it's right. a murderer or some other kind of culprit, or in the case of some stories, uh, the, you're looking for a good person or a hero, and you find out that you yourself are a hero. There's right. a right. number of examples of that. One of the ones I mentioned in the book is the is the movie The Ten Commandments, in which Moses is looking for the deliverer of the Hebrews, and he finds out, of course, right. that he himself is that yeah. that person. And so, I over the years, I kind of kept. Um, running across many examples of this same theme, a theme that I that I that I call the, the circular detective. Circular, of course, because it's the detective who kind of goes around in a circle to find out right. that he, he's the person he's looking for. So that was kind of what kept me going for um, for a long time. And sort of, I spent years. By the way, all this time I was practicing law. I, but well, one of sort of a side interest of mine, I did, read a lot of literature, world literature, and kept running across fascinating examples of this uh, theme, of which, of course, Oedipus Rex would have to be considered the paradigmatic example. Right. Then I realized at a certain point that that part of the story really comes to an end a third of the way through in that dialogue with Jocasta that I described, because you know, after Jocasta tells him about how Laius was killed, Oedipus realizes that he may well have been Laius's murder. He may well be the person he was he's searching for, he, he's holding out this one hope that maybe the witness will say, no, it wasn't you. But he's a smart enough guy to know that that's a fairly slender thread. And so this circular detective story, uh, I realize, really comes to an end at the, at the end of the first third. The next third of the play is a very different kind of play. It's no longer, it's no longer about who killed Laius. It's a play asking the question, who am I? Yeah. And that's that existential story that I've been... That and you, been you're right, about. we kind of lose the murder mystery for a while. Exactly, we really do. It's really not much of a focus for the, for the rest of the play. All the focus is on, well, who, who am I? Okay, I'm this, I was adopted, and this shepherd got me from this other, uh, this other guy, and where did I come from? Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, that was sort of a great interest for me for a long time, and I realized that, and I also realized... There's actually, when you know, Oedipus finds out the truth, he actually makes a number of discoveries, not just we think of it as sort of like a one big revelation, but there's actually several revelations in one. And one, of course, is the one we think of as the revelation that, well, you know, who he is and who he, who he killed and who he's married to. But um, those are sort of the, you know, the really shocking revelations. But he also, he also discovers uh, a couple of other things. He discovers, for example, that the prophecy had come true. And, and there's that. Um, oh. I thought that was fascinating because really it's it's a great example of a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy right. brought about by the you know, by the pro- prophecy itself. In fact, it's such a great example of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the, the 20th century philosopher Karl Popper actually called it a, the Oedipus effect when he was describing that exactly that exact type of self-fulfilling prophecy. And then the third thing uh, he discovers is that he's home. He realizes oh, right. that he's sort of in his life, he's kind of gone full circle around. He started off his life in Thebes, and he's back He's back home where he started. I think about some of the other stories and movies that we love that have involved that theme. I think about, for example, Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. where he finds out that all this time he's been back on Earth, and, and so on. There's other stories like this. I think you could even say, the Wizard of Oz. She finds out right. all, all this time she's been home. 
Um, and, um, and, and so I realized that there's these other great discoveries, and that's all in the middle third of the play. And then you come to the final third of the play. Now, I, I have to confess that for a long time I didn't really care that much about the final third of the play. It just seemed like kind of the, you know, the mopping up. And, I, and, and, and a number of other scholars have said, you know, kind of, well, um, the play really kind of ends with the revelation and the rest of it is just kind of, it's kind of like at the end of Hamlet when everyone's dead and Fordham Raw comes in and does some cleaning up, you know, it's effectively over at that point. Well, over time I realized, no, it's not over. And it's actually a full third of the play. And this eventually came to me to be, in a sense, almost the most significant part. It's about a hero, and it's about what we mean by character, because Oedipus, as I said before, you know, takes responsibility for his for his actions, which he didn't have to do. In fact, I think it's sort of it's, it's kind of funny. Sophocles also wrote um, a play, Oedipus at Colonus, which is about Oedipus right at the end of his life. Yeah, it's a whole other story, but in also Oedipus a really cool Colonus, play. It's one of the great plays of all time. Sophocles wrote it when he was in his 80s. I mean, it's just this masterpiece that he wrote as yeah. a whole man himself. But um, he, uh, there's one moment in the play where Oedipus exa- actually says, exactly said, he said, well, it wasn't my fault, I know. So you, <laughs> so you have even another play by Sophocles where he says that, but not in Oedipus Rex. He takes responsibility. And it, that to me is the real meaning of, of heroism. When we think of Oedipus as, as a hero, as a great hero, that's to me the most important reason. Because you have these people, these mythographers, um, uh, these great 20th century people who studied mythographer, uh, mythology, people like Lord Raglan and some of Freud's uh, disciples, and several of them actually uh, decided that Oedipus actually was the paradigmatic hero of of song and uh, song and story. If you take if you take all the elements of the story of of a hero story, great hero stories like you know, being cast out as an as an as an infant and having various ventures and encountering a monster and killing a monster yeah. and all these kind of things. Yeah. Well, if you actually went through the checklist, you'd find that Oedipus actually checked off more ba- boxes than anyone, and in that sense, is sort of the you know the uh, iconic hero. But I think this is the most important reason that he's a hero to me, at least. Um, this display of character. And it seems to me from reading your book that that at different points in your life you got different things from this play exactly well that's ex- that's exactly right and for um, for example this this business about um the real meaning of, of heroism and the real meaning of character i i don't think that was as important to me until later you know until later in my life i mean i think right. i don't know maybe like a lot of people earlier in my life was much more concerned with being smart and, you know, <laughs> doing well in school and being clever right. and, right. you know, and all that kind of stuff. And only later on, I think, uh, this character just becomes more and more important as one goes on in life. Which is funny now, because as I'm hearing you say that, I think to myself, well, that's Oedipus at the beginning of the play. Well, exactly. He's, well, you know, he's, he's all concerned exactly. about everybody loving him and... <laughs> Well, ex- ex- exactly, and he is, you know, at the beginning of the play, he's sort of the, the, the man in full. Uh, he he's very very much the man in command, uh, the beloved king, uh, and then he goes down downhill from there. But another thing that's you know I think is interesting about it the, is 
uh, you know, there's two iconic images, pictorial images of Oedipus that you see in works of art, the history of Western art. The first is the image of Oedipus and the Sphinx. Right. Uh, there's, in fact, that's, uh, that's what I use in the cover of the book. There's a famous painting by, well, there's a lot of them, and they're on Greek vases and things. The famous painting by Ang that's hanging in the Louvre. But um, this image, this classic uh, image of Oedipus standing in front of the Sphinx and figuring out her clearly, you know, the, the, the heroic young man, confident, brash, right. and so on. And what he does there is, uh, well, and so there's that image. Then the other, I think, most famous uh, image of Oedipus is Oedipus. A blind Oedipus, you know, with right. blood dripping from his eyes and leaning on his daughter because he's he's blind and helpless. And yet the interesting thing to me about that, you have these two images, and they couldn't possibly be, in one sense, they couldn't possibly be more different from each other. But at the same time, they're both images of a man saving his city. And that to me is just remarkable. Oh, right, right. Wow. Oh, I'd never made that connection. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hey, thank thank you for talking to me. I, I, I think I've already said this to you. I love your book. I just found it, like, fun to read, but also just incredibly enlightening in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and this was after, you know, I've already kind of studied and been working on an adaptation of Oedipus. It really kind of blew my mind repeatedly, so thank you for that. <laughs> Well, thank thank you for music music to my ears. I hope my mother listens to this so she can. So she can <laughs> and I don't know if I can if I can say this about your libretto. What, what we should say for people listening, I've I've been working on an adaptation of Oedipus as if Gilbert and Sullivan had written an Oedipus operetta. So I've been working on this, which is how I found your book. And uh, Scott, if I could say this, that you sent me an advanced copy of the libretto, and I just yeah. I just read it, and I found it uproariously funny. <laughs> Thank you. La- laughed out loud many times while I was reading it. It really is a wonderful story. Like it's so rich, and the characters are so rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why people have been fascinated by it, and have been, you know, uh, scholars and philosophers and psychologists. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Freud and all this, and that's a whole right. other area. But they've been studying, you know, studying and analyzing it for, for, for you know, centuries. And people and, still do the play, and there are multiple movie versions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're ever. I don't think we're ever going to lose. You know, there's some stories that are so great, and I don't. And this is certainly one of them. That we'll never lose it. We'll never lose interest. We'll never. We'll never. Also, the, the scholars and. The classists and others will never stop, tire of debating its, its its meaning. Right, right. There's there's always something else to find there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really interesting, and uh, it's just fun to to dig into this richness, particularly of this like incredibly iconic piece of theater. Well, thank you for I, I enjoyed I enjoyed talking, Scott. Thank you for joining us. This is Scott Miller. Now you, too, have achieved stage rock. See you next time.